see you. Psalm 1, or Psalm 32, excuse me, Psalm 32, page 395 in our church Bibles. In just a moment, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 32. Again, if you're new to West Cohasset, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor, and it's an absolute privilege to have you here. We're going to read from the Bible, and then we're going to pray, and then we were going to learn from this Psalm 32. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 32 of David, a Meskel. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and it did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man, the person who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Thanks be to God for his word. What would we do without it? Let's bow together and let's pray. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch like me His treasure. Gracious God and Father, here we are again like we have so many times before in the company of Your people with the certainty of Your presence and the absolute promise of giving us Your much-needed help. So, Father, as our Bibles are open before us, we would ask that you would make your word come alive in us, that by the Holy Spirit you will illumine this printed page, that you will help the one who speaks, help the listeners who listen, in order that we would all believe and embrace your word as you would please take hold of this whole situation. Transform us this morning by your mighty power and surprise us, God, with your unusual grace. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. The theologian, Augustine, who never listened to his mother when he was younger, had this 30-second psalm inscribed on the wall next to his bed as he was dying in order that he would meditate on this psalm better. He very much liked this 30-second psalm because he said, and you're going to get a little Latin lesson here this morning, why not? Intelligentia prima esta ut tenoris pectorium. And that is Latin for the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Luther, who said there's nothing more dangerous to the saint than our own righteousness, was reported to have been asked which of all the Psalms were the best. He gave four, 
one of which was this psalm, because he said, the 32nd Psalm teaches us how we may be righteous before God. For men and women lower sin's misery and try to make satisfaction for it by works. But the psalmist says, even saints are sinners. They cannot be holy. They cannot be happy except by confessing themselves as sinners before God, knowing that they are regarded as righteous only from the grace of God. In short, our righteousness needed is not a righteousness performed by us. Our righteousness needed is called in plain language here, the forgiveness of our sins. Augustine, Luther, and now Paul, not Paul McCartney of the Beatles, but Paul the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, who as an older man said, and I'm sure most of you know this passage, Christ Jesus entered the world to rescue sinners, and I am the worst of all. That Paul quoted from this psalm, verses 1 and 2 in Romans form, to affirm what we just affirmed in our New City Catechism this morning, the great doctrine of justification, that God, and if you really thought through this, this is absolutely amazing, that God imputes to us the very perfect righteousness of Christ, and that righteousness has such staying power that it will never leave us, and we will always need it if we have any hope of heaven, any hope of reconciliation with God, and any hope of happiness at all. So I want you to hear me, because this introduction that I gave you has a, has a simple, profound truth that we dare not miss. And the truth is this. These were some of the best and brightest men of God. These were giants of the faith who God saved by His grace. These men kept the doctrine of justification alive during some of the church's darkest moments. These men never seemed to lose sight of the fact of just how great of a sinner they were and how necessary confession of sin was and how hopeless their situation was without the substitutionary death of Christ. Hence, although these men were evangelistic jaggernauts, the doctrine of justification didn't make them sleepy and slow Christians. Although these men were zealous for God, these men were so mindful of their personal sin that they were compelled to meditate on this psalm, to quote from it, to call it one of the best, and say that this is a great psalm for sinners, yes. But it's also a great psalm for sinners who are saints. So this psalm is a meskel. It's instruction. You can read that there in the superscription below the title. Meskel means instruction. And so we're going to listen to God through the pen of David on happiness. Do you want to be happy? Do you want a happiness not tied to circumstances which just wax and wane? Are you happy now? Are you happy now? If not, well, I want you to listen carefully to this psalm because this psalm is going to teach us of the absolute need of confession of sin as a norm in the lives of God's people and as a must for those who are outside of Jesus Christ if we have any hope of happiness at all. Hence the title of the talk, Happiness. And the key in this for Augustine and Luther and Paul and and now in God's dealing with David was that God through various means, i.e. conscience, circumstance, and conviction. Do you see here in their Bible, verse 4a, day and night your hand was heavy on me because my sin was unconfessed inside of me? So these men, having abandoned the the absolute uselessness of comparing yourselves 
to others to feel happy about yourself because we know how easily we can manipulate our thoughts of others so that we become bigger, better, brighter than them when we compare ourselves to them. Having abandoned the idea that, they're, that, they're, um, that sin is no real big deal, it's just a minor thing in the vast sum of things, and having abandoned the idea that happiness is found when we you know, propel ourselves first in everything, and even of having abandoned the idea of happiness is found in me feeling good about myself, so I will volunteer my time so that I can feel good about myself. Can you imagine if you're the desperate poor, someone helps you, and you find out the only reason why they helped you because, was because they wanted to feel good about themselves. No, they did none of this. But what they did was by viewing themselves in light of the moral law of God and the character of God, these men kept their eyes on Jesus, looked full, if you would, into his wonderful face, and by way of confession and repentance as a norm, they cast themselves on God's mercy and then enjoyed themselves in and only in God's righteousness. Well, someone says, well, there, there must be more to happiness than that. And in our nature, we say, you know, I can find happiness my way. I can walk my own path. I can do my own thing. I don't need G, letter G. I don't need Jesus as my guide. And then we open our Bible and read Psalm 32, and we learn the key to happiness begins with an initial and a continual confession of our sin to God. I was reading some C.S. Lewis this week. It just made me jump off my chair because I don't do what C.S. Lewis does, which I'm about to tell you. He said in his, in his evening prayer confessional time. Really? Evening prayer con- uh, confessional time. He thinks through the whole day and lays his sin before his God. Now I want you to know then, as you can see there in the psalm, that happiness is, your happiness is very important to God. This is the second psalm that begins with the word blessed. And the word blessed means happiness. And that word is used 26 times in the Psalter. In fact, it's the first word which opens the whole of the book of Psalm. Blessed or happy is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. So the psalmist tells us the key to happiness is also holiness. And this is, of course, very, very true. But you dare not forget what is very plain to me the older I become. Because this is the instruction of Psalm 32. I am in my fallen nature unholy. And a lifelong battle with sin is to be expected. I sometimes win, sometimes lose. And there's no glory in either one for me personally. Therefore, my only hope is to cling to the biblical truth, which says part of my holiness, get this, part of my holiness is recognizing what a wretched person I am, wondering who will rescue me from such a miserable state, And then as I turn to Christ alone in confession and repentance, happiness is promised me. Now, have you ever thought of your ability to be happy is directly tied to you enjoying the grace of confession and repentance? Have you ever thought of that? Our happiness is directly tied to taking a good look at ourselves, being honest as we see the righteous standard of God and don't hide our sin, don't try to hold it in, but confess our sin and let it out to our God. So then, automatically, you should be thinking that happiness is not tied to a great number of good deeds, as helpful as they may be. Happiness is not tied to some technique. I mean, this is what we get fed now. 
This is some technique, some mechanism, some change of your mood. It's not tied to being, um, to being in a certain place, having a certain amount, and on and on and on. But the Bible's prepared to tell us this morning that as a New Covenant Christian, our happiness is tied to Jesus Christ who paid for our sins with His precious blood. So, so I think that probably the most unhappiest of Christians, and you know, this would be a great Sunday to be really, really honest with yourself. I suppose the unhappy, unhappiest Christians are those who have far too low of their personal view, excuse me, have far too low of a view of their personal sins and have far too low of their need of personal confession and have a keen eye on how, the, how, on how, sorry, on how horrible the sins of others are so that the need for confession and repentance is either diverted or reduced. Forgetting that Jesus Christ said in one of his first recorded sermons, happy, blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit. In other words, ha- in other words happy are the ones who have a sensible sense of how needy they are before God and for his righteousness. What a horrible world we live in sometimes, even in evangelical circles, because the only thing that we have to say to the world is how bad they are. And therefore, we give them half of what they need to know. And then personal confession might be on the low. So that evangelical happiness might be just at its lowest level ever. Therefore, Since God's revealed will here in Psalm 32 is our happiness, His way, since your personal happiness is apparently important to God, it becomes important to me. And so this psalm then is set before us. And so whenever we raise the topic of happiness, many people have many things to say about being happy. But in order that we would not devalue biblical happiness, we need to take a moment just to consider a few things. Because whenever you ask people, I mean, this is just a universal thought, It goes beyond every geographical boundary, ethnicity, language, everything. When you survey people and ask them their hopes and dreams, typically what they say is, what are you hoping for? And they say in some way, I just want to be happy. I mean, that's just almost a universal reply. They might not say it exactly that way, but they say it. So September 27, 2010, article in Time Magazine, $75,000 a year is said to be the going rate in America where people say that they can be happy. If they have less money than that per year, they are not happy as much. If they have more money than that per year, they are not any happier than those who average $75,000 a year. In the Spectator magazine, February 7, 2014, Hugo Rifkin wrote an article, If Philip Seymour Hoffman wasn't happy, what hope is there for the rest of us? And in the article, he chronicles what many people would consider a prosperous life of the movie actor Philip Seymour. If you're wondering who he is, if you've seen the second uh, Hunger Games movie, he was one of the actors in there. He was the games guy. He, He ran the games. And he died in a drug-fueled rage in a New York City apartment, syringe still in arm when they placed him in his body bag. And so the article goes on and says, in terms of what the world would count as happiness, beauty, glory, riches, accomplishments, ease, and pleasure, in those terms, Philip Hoffman had it all. And then Rifkin ends the article saying this, what's it all about, really, this bright-eyed life of toil and ambition, when one can live a life that goes as well as his and still leaves you dialing the drug dealer 
Or to put it another way, if he wasn't happy, what bloody hope is there for the rest of us? And for those of us who think, okay, yeah, that's the wild life. I just want the quiet country life. I just want to have my kingdom in the country and call my own shots. You need to listen to Walter Lippmann. This is the third time since I've been here in the six years that I've read from Walter Lippmann. I think I should read it every summer. It's preface to morals. And what he's doing is describing postmodern man, modern man, as he, as he experiences in the world, which he says, this civilization leaves a dry, dusty taste in his mouth. And then he writes. He may be very busy at, with many things, but he discovers one day that he's no longer sure that they're worth doing. He's been much preoccupied, but he's no longer sure he knows why he's become involved in an elaborate routine of pleasures, and they do not seem to amuse him but much at all. He finds it hard to believe that doing any one thing is better than any other thing, or in fact that it's better than doing nothing at all. It occurs to him that it's a great deal of trouble to live, and that even the best of lives, the thrills, are few and far between. He begins more or less to consciously seek satisfaction because he no longer satisfied, and all the while he realizes that the pursuit of happiness was always a most unhappy guest. Later on, he not only loses his appetite, but becomes excessively miserable trying to recover it. Well, that's honest. That's very, very honest. And parents, we would be the most foolish parents of all if we by any means suggest to our kids who are corrupt in nature, born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law, if we suggested to them that the key to happiness is in academic stature and athletic ability and relationships and popularity, beauty, pleasure, etc., etc., would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Would you remove the hand of God that has fueled you in your groanings of unhappiness? Verse 3. And has taken your strength, verse 4. Or perhaps you've been on some wild goose chase for happiness for some years and it's left you, as Littman says, with a dry, dusty taste in your mouth. Would you be happy? Then our first point this morning is know yourself a sinner. Now, now this know yourself a sinner is not like in the generic sense. You know how it goes. Well, yes, of course I know I'm a sinner, but, but I'm not bad as Mr. X over there. I mean, they, I'm bad, yeah, but they are just so bad. I'm not that bad. This is not that. Happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. Verses 1 and 2 has to begin with the notion that the person knows they have sinned. So there's no self-delusion in here. There's no clever justifications. There, there's no dumbing down of what we have done. That's our first point. In record time. Can you believe it? That's point number one. Know yourself a sinner. Okay, then point number two. Know what sin is. And again, this is not in any generic sense. So what David does for us in verses one and two is he uses three Hebrew, Hebrew words to describe what sin is. So the first word is in verse one there. He uses the word pesha. And that word pesha means you've gone over a given boundary. In other words, this is rebellion. Rebellion against God. And all sin, even if we sin against one another, is rebellion against God. So Pesha, the word for sin, means doing what God forbids. The second word that David uses there in verse 1b is the word chada. And the word chada means falling short of a given standard. In other words, not doing what God requires. 
The third term David uses, translated in verse 2b, blessed is the man who sin, sins, the Lord does not count against them. Sin is the word there, is the word hawan. And that word means twisted or perverted, which is when one puts on an outward show of righteousness, but has inward wickedness in their performance of their supposed righteousness. So this is a con game. It's a perversion outside of what actually is taking place inside. And of course, Jesus only knows that perfectly. And of course, the Pharisees did that wonderfully. So, so loved ones, do you know what sin is? And sin goes way beyond whatever the popular sins that everybody else apparently is committing in our day. This is what God forbids. Do not covet. Don't want your neighbor's stuff, your neighbor's life, your neighbor's spouse. Don't lie. No half-truths. Don't steal. Husbands, wives, kiss your own spouse in your mind and with your lips. Don't murder. Don't hate in such a way that you could just kill them. That's what God forbids. What does God require? Well, listen to your mom and dad. Obey them. Keep the Lord's day, the Lord's day, His way. Don't misuse God's name. Don't say things about God that are untrue. Don't make God into any way you would like God to be. So that everything you want, apparently God is in agreement with you. And keep God first. And everything. Everything? Yeah, everything. That's what God requires. So immediately we should say, well, I'm, I'm a sinner then. So the first step to our happiness is more than likely sadness and a brutal honestness in order that we would be silent before God at first as He condemns us by His righteous law. And then by confession of sin, Allah Psalm 32, say, God, will you forgive me? So, so my mind goes back to two winters ago. It was a horrible night. It was a Sunday night. I was on the edge of my bed like a bad little boy as I was trying to hide all these sins from God, trying to cover them up. And so don't be disappointed in me. It was, edge of my bed, huffing and puffing and literally panicking, trying to justify why I am not as bad as, as my mind says I am. Too long, too long unconfessed sin. Too long, and it drove me crazy. Book of Common Prayer, I have erred and strayed from your ways like a lost sheep and followed too much the devices and desires of my own heart, and there is no strength in me. There's no happiness in me. Point number one, know yourself a sinner. Point number two, know what sin is. Let, let our sadness be the first steps to our happiness. Point number three, know that God will remove all sin. So what David does here is just as he gives three words for sin, he gives three words for forgiveness. Verse, first word, verse one, happy is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. And the word transgression, or excuse me, the word forgiven literally means to be lifted off. Because if our sin is unconfessed, as our conscience is trained in a life, it will feel like a heavy burden. 
That's, that's John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, right? Pilgrim refers to his sin as the great burden that he took to the cross of Christ. And so what the psalmist does here is he uses terms to describe, uh, physical terms to describe what unconfessed sin is. You see it there in verses 3 and 4? He uses physical terms, if you would, physical pain, not sure if it's real or just by way of this is what it feels like. But he uses that. Listen to Psalm 38. Same thing. My, my, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. I'm bowed down very low all day long. I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. Well, why? Well, because of unconfessed sin. You know the song, my sin, my, my, my sin, oh, the bliss, the happiness of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's the first word. The second word that David uses to describe what God does in our confession is, verse 1, be covered. Happy is the one whose sins are covered. And this is, this is an atonement word. This is a Old Testament sacrifice word. It's the word often used when the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that sits over it is, is described. The Ark of the Covenant held the moral law of God. And then God covers that, if you would, with the blood of bulls and goats and, and the Old Testament covenantal system. And so we have God's judgment, if you would, passing over us because God covers us in his forgiving power. The third word David uses is the word count. Happy is the person whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And this is an accounting word that would be used in the ancient world's banking system. And it's sometimes translated impute. So this is great. When a person, verse 4b, is, is in genuine confession and repentance to God, then God does not impute, God does not count their sins against them. God does not hold those sins against them. Well, Why? Well, the believer in the Old Testament had their sin kept at bay by God's grace and faith in the Old Covenant system. But the believers in the New Testament and ever since have their sins washed away as God was in Christ, not counting men and women's sins against them, but counting them against Christ. And you see, loved ones, that's why Luther said about Psalm 32, our righteousness needed comes from our sins being forgiven. Have you ever thought of that? Our righteousness needed comes from our sins being forgiven. Not us trying harder to be better so that we'll feel better. Not even us asking for forgiveness because the reality is that we do not deserve forgiveness. But we're offered forgiveness as God in Christ bears our sin and His wrath on our, and our death in His body on a tree. Because, you know, and this is, this is the human side of us. If we attempt to turn this psalm into some, time, you know, some kind of grandstanding, I'm going to go home and I, I'm going to confess my sin more than anyone else in the whole congregation, then where is God's grace in that? Where is, as all things should be, where is the glory of God in that? It's man once more making far too much of himself. Everything in this psalm relies on the grace of God. That's our fourth point, right? Know that forgiveness itself is a grace. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, this is the message translation, when I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder, my words became day-long groans, the pressure never let up, all the juices of my life dried up. Why are they in that condition? One reason, unconfessed sin. 
What a grace of God that's displayed there then in verses 3 and 4 because what God does is He gives us the grace of godly pain. Pain sent by God through Christ's nail-pierced hands. The dryness, the dullness, the weakness, the sapping of our strength. And all that pain that God gives because of unconfessed sin, God is working. He's working so that we'll fess up and do what's right so that we can become happy. 17th century pilgrim, Abraham Wright. We may feel God's heavy hand as a father upon us when he strikes us as well as when he strokes us. God keeps all our tears in a bottle, so precious is the water that is stilled from the repentant eyes. And because he, he will be sure not to fail, he notes how many drops there are in his register. It was a precious moment wherein the woman in the Pharisee's house, the sinful woman, anointed the feet of Christ as her repentant tears wherewith she washed him were worth more than her most expensive fragrance. Then he goes on, for I am mended by my sickness, enriched by my poverty, strengthened by my weakness. What fools are we then to frown upon our afflictions? They are not indeed for our pleasure, they are for our profit. Malcolm Mulridge, British author, journalist, late 20th century. He became a Christian later in his years. This is what he said. Suppose you could eliminate pain and suffering in this fallen world. What a dreadful place this world would be. Everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature man to feel overly important and overly pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Now, loved ones, what David is teaching us is that if we have any hope of happiness at all, then we're going to need to be in relationship with God. We're going to need to have our sins confessed and our sins forgiven. We're, 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 we're going to need, if God needs to, if God needs to send difficult circumstances to corner us so that we will simply confess our sins, then He is so loving that He will do it. We're going to need to repent. And you're going to need to know that everything is of a grace, a grace that reveals to us what sin is. We would never know. A grace that, that God has put in our conscience so we might be awakened to the reality of our sin. A grace that brings us to our senses to repent of our sin. A grace that offers us free forgiveness because God did not have to automatically forgive anyone. God's hands are not tied here. God graciously offered us His Son who swallowed up His wrath and removed our sin. Hence, for the Christian... Our sins are forgiven, covered, not counted. And in Christ, God does not see them. God does not count them against us. But he forgets them, forgives them, and covers them at a great cost. Because here's what you need to know. Someone said, I don't know who it was, God will forgive me. It's his job. I don't like that at all. God's not our cabana boy. It's not God's job to forgive It's a mercy that he forgives it all. And again, it cost God his son that we might have forgiveness offered to us this morning. So be happy. But don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Okay, our time is done. Okay, do you want to be happy? God wants you to be happy. 
Okay, then you're going to have to know yourself a sinner. Not like sinner, sinner, but sinner, sinner. You're going to have to know what sin is. Doing what God forbids. Not doing what God requires. Making an outward show when inside it's all ugly. Know that God in Christ will remove all sin as we confess and repent. So you're going to have to be brutally honest with yourself here. And then know that at the end of the day, forgiveness is a grace. Then our last point, know Christ. Know Christ. So you might be here this morning and you're unhappy. You never would admit it. You're a master of disguise Sunday by Sunday. And then all of a sudden, here comes the wonder of God's grace. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from, uh, from us. But you can't get there. You're still stuck in. It's his fault that I'm not happy. It's her fault that I'm not happy. It's God's fault that I'm not happy. It's my job. It's my pay. It's my location. It's this nation. And God looks down from heaven. And he says, do you you want to be happy? Do Do you want to be really happy? Then you need to be forgiven. And being forgiven begins with confession of your sin in Jesus' name. And don't be a mule. Verse 9, you see it there? Don't be stubborn. Stop it. Learn the lesson of this psalm. This is God. You're a mess. But I forgive. Christ made it possible. Fess up. Don't point out others. Fess up. You fess up. You know, I suppose there's many ways that we can hide our, our unhappiness. A busy life, right? Lots of activity. Lots of activity. Why? Because when the stillness comes, it's too hard on our mind. Or we may hide it by saying slow life, slow pace, relaxing and doing very, very little is the key to my happiness. Or this might be worst of all. We say, I'm going to hide my unhappiness with fierce religious activity because that's going to quiet my conscience and, and maybe that will be enough to appease my God. Those things won't work. Because forgiveness of sin only comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Without the forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And when God forgives sin, he will forget sin. Our, ha- our history is clean. See the last verse there, verse 32. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous sing. All you who are upright in heart, most of the time we sing because we're happy. Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. Who, like we, his praise should sing. Solid, joys, and lasting pleasures. None but Zion's children sing. Then the last one. It's a classic. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When what? If you know it, you can say it. When Jesus washed my sins away. Can it be that easy and can it be that good? Yes. Yes, it can. Thanks for your attention. Let's bow together and pray. Well, Father, we once again thank you for the glory of the gospel. 
And Father, once again, we would say to you this morning, where would we be without it? If it was up to us, if our happiness was up to us, what, what a wretch, what a mess we would make. That Father, in your loving ways, you who are perfect beyond description, you look down from your heaven and see your precious children. Ask that wonderful question, do you want to be happy? And then the cure God has given through your mighty word. You've got to know that we're sinners. You've got to know what sin is so we won't try to play that awful game of being better or not as bad. We've got to know, Father, that you quickly remove it because of the mighty act of redemption by Jesus Christ. We've got to believe, God, that it's a grace, that we won't be high-minded in these things. And then we've got to know Jesus Christ. Because our only hope for happiness is not in ourselves. Our only hope for happiness is because Jesus Christ came into this world, died our death, raised again, ascended, and soon returning. And so, Father, this morning in our happiness, we pray that that day would be soon. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please stand with us.